Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Lindsay Haswell. Now, Lindsay is the Chief Administrative Officer and CLO, the Chief Legal Officer at blockchain.com. And what a story this one is. Fascinating. Lindsay started her career at Gibson Dunn. She was uh, litigated there for over 10 years. She was on the path to partnership, but she decided to veer off that path and join a startup. She joined Uber in 2015. And she takes us on her journey, risk-taking, learning appetite that she has. Right to her current role, she spent some time at a startup that didn't work in the driverless car space. And she tells us about that. She tells us about that right at the very end when we ask her what's the hardest thing she's ever done. But I'm not going to give too much away. And more importantly right now, she explains her role at blockchain.com. She has responsibility for legal, HR and compliance. And what I love about this show too is we do a bit of a deeper dive on a lot of terminology and a lot of concepts that that a lot of that some of us are struggling to understand. Cryptocurrency, NFTs, DeFi's the lot. It's a really fascinating discussion. You can absolutely see there's so much more ahead for the Lindsay Haswell story. She's going to continue having a stellar career. I'm absolutely convinced of it. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Lindsay Haswell, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm super excited about the discussion we're about to have. Thanks, Jim. I'm excited to be here. Now, Lindsay, I'm going to just call out some positions that you've had. You're currently, of course, now the Chief Administrative Officer and the Chief Legal Officer of blockchain.com. Okay, but there's you've got some fascinating experience leading up to this. I'm just going to call them out and then I'd love to do, I usually start with what got you into law in the first place. So we might do a bit of that, but I really want to make sure we've got enough time to talk about your time at Gibson Dunn. You were there about 11 years. You were at Uber, at Depot Global, at Lime. Uh, I think you're part of the Uber Angel Syndicate. So understanding a bit more about what the, what that's about, what, what dot women. And most recently, I think you've been at blockchain.com for about 12 months. So it's a uh, it's a fascinating career. I'm dying to get my fingers right into it. Tell me how it started for you. Let, let's say you're interested in law and then we'll launch into your time at, at Gibson Dunn. Sure. So, you know, I, I was one of those people that I was determined either to be a lawyer or a broadcast journalist. And actually, <laughs> I got my law degree. I, before I got my law degree, I got a broadcast journalism degree. And I still have the resume tape where I was at that point holding a mic. Is that right? Yep. And I was doing like weather reports around campus, but I always had an attraction to the law. I love the convergence of policy. Um, yep. I spent a lot of years studying antitrust law. I love economics. I love how they all kind of converge in law. I've always been big on speaking publicly. I always wanted to be a litigator. Um, and so that's how I really spent the first decade of my career at Gibson yep. Dunn, defending yep. large tech companies in antitrust and general corporate matters. And so we always had one foot kind of in the tech world. When a good opportunity came along, I I started working for a small company at that time called Uber Cab. And it was really mostly in San Francisco trying to solve at the time, uniquely San Francisco problem of 
of poor taxi cab coverage, started advising them on the regulatory front and decided to jump in full time. And tell me about that, though, because at that time you would have spent, I think it was about 11 years at Gibson Dunn, so it's secure. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, in a sense, a bit of a safe environment, certainly for the high-performing individuals getting paid really well, doing fantastic work. It's a career path and, and one which can lead to a very comfortable life. Why take the risk that you did and say, I'm going to go at a, at a startup called Uber? I just, you know, Jim, in my career, I've always tried to push myself to make sure I'm learning. And at Gibson Dunn, I, I learned so much. I'd been there over a decade. Yep. I didn't feel like there was a lot more that I would learn. Certainly, I would continue to hone pieces of my craft as a litigator. Yep. But I knew it was time to go learn something new. And looking back on the 11 years at Gibson, the times I really enjoyed were the ones where I was really close to a particular client. Yeah. So maybe we were going through a trial or we were doing something that had an intense period of me being basically kind of inside of a yeah. company. And those were the times that I was most alive. And yeah. so I knew, I kind of knew at some level I would go into a company. In fact, I, I actually interviewed at Facebook when it was about 15 lawyers and it was probably a few hundred people. And I kind of turned it down at the time and I thought, I don't know if Facebook's going to be a thing. <laughs> I love that. Maybe 2006 or something. I know. Yeah. I also interviewed at Twitter when there was only a couple lawyers too. So I had flirted with this idea wow. of this smaller company that was trying to ship a product. Yeah. And I saw what the lawyers were doing, wearing multi-hats, not just being lawyers, but being business leaders that sometimes brought to the table their you know legal expertise. And I knew that there was a moment that I would find all of the things line up. And for me, that ended up being Uber. So it was kind of a natural progression at the time. And that doesn't sound like it was a career path that you certainly planned, but it's being all in and what you're doing right at the moment and then work and then being open to opportunities, presumably, and being all in at Gibson Dunn and the open the opportunities and the and the kind of the experience that you had working closely with the tech companies starts kind of molding a path for you. Now th this is my space or this is what I like. Is that was it more kind of that um, learning about yourself and what motivates you, or do you think that's kind of preset and you really know before you actually experience it? I think just being open to different ideas and opportunities certainly my mentors at Gibson Dunn planned for me to be a lifetime partner. Of course. There. And yep. I, you know, and I was open to that too, but I just, you know, I loved being an, invested in one client instead yep. of many clients at once. And I knew I really enjoyed that. And so, I, and I also knew there was so much that I didn't know. And that's ultimately what attracted me is being a lawyer inside of a company. It's a different skill set than it being is. a law firm lawyer. And so for me, just being open to the opportunities as they came, as you can see, I was, I was, it took me a little while to figure out what the right path was. Yep. And I almost left earlier in my career at Gibson Dunn. But I think by the time I left, I brought with me sufficient amount of experience and seniority to be able to go right into managing a team rather than working my th way through up a com in a company, for example. And one more question about that transition. How did you weigh up? Because I had a similar experience myself. When you're weighing up the future and the security that a particular future can give you, no doubt you had that weighed up, a partnership path at Gibson Dunn, an incredible, a prestigious and secure financial future. How did you weigh that up with the uncertainty of going into a startup? I looked at it like an MBA. I mean, you know, yep. I, I looked at it like it's almost 
an MBA where instead of me paying for tuition, they still yeah. pay me a salary. Admittedly, yep. you're right, Jim, a lower salary, significantly so than what I was making in a yeah. law firm. But for me, it was simply an investment in my future. Yeah. I knew that there was much I didn't know. And I knew that I would get a crash course in running and building a business and shipping product. You just don't do that when you're a no. lawyer in a firm. Yep. And so I, I, I considered that although it was a financial challenge, it was at least a two-year gig where I would really learn so much that it would make, it would just be an investment in the future. And ultimately, of course, you know, I got paid in stock options and it took a little longer than it might in a law firm. Yep. But ultimately, I think if you're willing to take the risk, the risks can honestly pay even more in the long yeah. run than a law firm can. But yep. you certainly have to really ask yourself, what amount of risk are you willing to take? It turns out that I love taking risk as probably yep. indicated by some of the companies I've worked at. Yeah. And, and and that, it's funny, one of the themes I hear from a number of my podcast guests, uh, the advice they give to them that, that they would give to their 25-year-old self is often take more risk. Take more risk when you're younger. Typically, if it's kind of calculated and usually is, and it's and the opportunity is one that you're prepared to lean into, it doesn't always pay off, but typically that's where the real rewards, not, not only financial, but the real personal rewards of, per, of growth. And I love the, the fact that you called that out. I think a number of us might spend uh, years in a career and that's where we start capping out at, at growth, and then being able to be courageous enough to say, you know what, it's the growth that's important. Where can I find it? I think that's a fantastic ingredient, if you like, for a really you know, a, a satisfying professional and professional career and a personal and, and a life. Yeah, I agree. And listen, I, I talk to law firm lawyers all the time about should they take the leap? They must look at you, Lindsay, and they look at with you with those longing eyes thinking, why can't I be? Can I do that? Can I, do, do you get some of that? I do. In fact, I recently spoke at a partner retreat for a law firm and I was talking to, you know, 500 partners of this law firm. And afterwards, <laughs> so many came up and said, you know, I really want to work at a company. And some of them even asked me, what was the comp? And, you know, in, in, as you know, in the year 2021, it was, I mean, law firms paid unprecedented salaries yeah. and bonuses because they had the same attrition issues that, you know, companies around yeah. the world had. And yep. so it's really interesting to see some of them say, oh, I, you know, I've got a mortgage and a house. I had those things too. Interestingly, you know, I the year that I left Gibson Dunn, I had a newborn baby. So maybe not the best timing, but you yep. kind of can't pick your timing. You have to sort of, again, it's about investing in your future. And for me, maybe it was interesting timing at the time, but it was yeah. totally worth it yeah. every minute. You know what? I, I, I always say timing is never perfect. It never aligns perfectly with the opportunity. But what you need to lean into is the opportunity and then the timing typically works itself out. So the, the the two are never perfect. They never aligned and it's always it's always I think the one the opportunity that you've got to you've got to place more weight on than the timing because as I said timing is hardly ever perfect. Okay, so so let's spend a bit of time on the timing at Uber, Depot Global, Lime. What are the key learnings for yourself having moved from from a law firm, what are you learning about yourself, and what are the key takeaways for you uh, during those, you know, th those first few years in those new positions? You know, I learned, Jim, that I like to solve problems. 
And sometimes they're legal and a lot of times they're not. They're, not. Yep. they're just simply business problems. And, and sometimes they have legal dimensions, sometimes they don't. In most of my roles, I've had a business role, a dual hat. I'm wearing at my current company, blockchain.com. I'm managing legal HR and compliance. Um, at Lime, I managed communications and marketing and PR, I managed a bunch of different functions. And so I, I really just, the throughput through these roles is, what is the company's mission? And how can I act in furtherance of it? A lot of times it's being a lawyer. A lot of times it's not. A lot of times it's just solving problems. And as yep. I say to the lawyers and the legal teams that I've had the fortune to build over the years, we solve business problems, not legal ones. We don't yep. build a law firm inside companies. We don't typically write legal memos and briefs. We think about what is the business trying to accomplish and we work hard to further the mission of the business while managing risk. Yep. And there's a very different mindset than you have in a law firm where you're trying to actually detail as a law firm lawyer often almost every conceivable risk. And I often say, my team would laugh if they heard this because I, I say it so much. I don't want to hear about the possible. I want to hear about the probable. Yeah. If it's below 51% probability, I'm almost completely uninterested in what the risk is. It's got to be something that really outweighs the business imperative. And it's a really different mindset shift for those. And it's funny, isn't it, how your lens can change so quickly and how so quickly when you've gone in-house, you realise, I think, the the lens that's that you wish an external lawyer advising you actually had because a lot of what you might have spent time on in the past as an external lawyer, you recognise when you're in-house, is actually completely different. It's A lot of it is noise. A lot of it's not relevant. And that... Yeah. Our early focus and the training on identifying every risk and 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 dealing with every risk, it's it's not the ideal model, is it really, for being a business problem solver? Very true. And that's why I think lawyers add so much value to companies because they can interpret those risks and they can say whether this is something that, you know, the, the business should stop and take note of or if the business can sort of take it in stride and keep moving and keep shipping that product. Yeah. And so... I, I do think the training that you get in a law firm is invaluable, but then that's to my point about why I made the jump. You get that essential business mindset that you just don't have as much in a law firm. You can only get it working in a company. Let's fast forward to your current role. I know you've only been there for 12 months. Tell me about blockchain.com. Tell me a, a little broadly about exactly what, what it is, what the mission is, and then let's do a bit of a deeper dive for, for your role. Sure. Yep. So blockchain.com is one of the oldest and most trusted companies in the crypto asset space. It's, it's about 11 years old, which is a long yep. time in this business. Founded a long time ago now, and we do... Uh, the easiest way to kind of think about it is honestly the JP Morgan of crypto assets. So just like JP Morgan, we have a retail and an institutional side to our business. On the retail side, we host what we call wallets, yep. which is basically like an account. And we host different kinds of wallets depending on what your needs are. We'll effectively hold or store your crypto assets for you. Uh, we also provide an exchange. So if you want to exchange your US dollars or your euros, into say Bitcoin, we can do that for you. Yep. And then on the institutional side, we help big institutions, increasingly conservative traditional yep. ones, buy, trade, sell, and lend their crypto assets as yep. well. The company, because it's been around a long time, so it's we have over 80 million wallets or 80 million accounts. And just to give you some perspective, more than a trillion dollars in transactions have taken place on our on our platform. 
and over a third of all Bitcoin transactions ever in history have taken place on the platform. So we, we function in over 200 countries. We have a team that's spread across the world. And it's a really exciting wow. time to be part of this industry. Yep. And so tell me, when you when you first joined, as I said, it's only 12 months ago, what were the two or three key kind of priorities, having got your arms around the, the business and the function, what were the two or three top priorities for you, to the extent that you can share them with us, that, that, um, that, that you started to focus on? I'd say the first one is build my team. Um, it was a very lean team, and I would say that both across all three teams that I managed, legal, compliance, and HR, they were quite small. In the last year, we more than doubled our headcount. And so really building the team was the number one yep. priority. I worked really hard to balance traditional finance lawyers who bring a, a really important perspective to the table, having worked in companies like Goldman and Morgan Stanley with more startup lawyers like myself. They, it's a really great mix of people. You find that the traditional finance people know the rules really well. They know the regulators well. And then you add in some startup lawyers. And what comes out of it is like a new way of looking at how we build the financial system native to the internet. Yep. I'd say my second priority was helping develop, especially in the U.S., a permanent predict predictable regulatory framework. When, you know, it's still the rules of engagement are still quite unclear in the space. Yeah. And so we spend a lot of time with a policy team as well, with board member Jim Messina, who was on the, the Obama White House team, trying to figure out what are the rules of engagement here and how do we partner with governments around the world in the U.S. as well to help build that. So that's been another key priority as well. And if I just, just kind of stop you there for a second and, and double click a little bit, that in itself seems to me to be an enormous task and challenge with all sorts of competing interests and priorities and, and cultures when you're talking about a global regulatory framework. How do you even start getting your arms around that and what what kind of framework do you use to put in place uh, I suppose a transparent a fair regime that will deal with all the sorts of challenges across all sorts of jurisdictions that, that you deal with I, I think to myself where, where do you even start with that <laughs> it is a big task <laughs> I will not lie yeah um, I think first of all there's there's some really good people in this space Higher and higher quality talent fleeing, you know, leaving other sectors. Coming. Fleeing. No, I know I didn't mean to say fleeing. Yeah, um, yeah, no, that's okay. Really high quality people coming into the space and recognizing the potential. I mean, if you think about, it's estimated eighteen percent of Americans alone own crypto, depending on which source you look at. You think about just the prices of crypto up over three hundred percent from a year ago. Now down a little bit, depending on what day yep. you um, look at the prices. So clearly there's something here. Regulators are actually increasingly interested in conversations. I mean, we are speaking to regulators and elected officials from across you know, many different countries at the state level, at the city level, financial services regulators, attorney generals. They're all really interested in what, what is this technology? How do we harness it for good? How does the US or Europe, the UK be on the forefront of building out regulations that make sense and not instead of you know taking the approach that for example China of kind of banning it how do we how do we find this to be something that that actually moves either the country or, or the industry forward and so one of the ways we do that is you know, we have really smart policy people we have as i mentioned Jim is seen on our board we also use our our relationships many of them 
forged uh, in, the, in my Uber days. And a lot of the same regulators and same people in the industry then are, are in the crypto industry. We working together with companies like Coinbase to come up with sensible regulations and even draft draft regulations that we're sharing with elected officials yep. and suggesting that, you know, this would be a really good way to regulate. It's just an ongoing dialogue. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds, Lindsay, to me, that, it, that it's, it's real pioneering stuff and companies like blockchain.com have got the opportunity to, to forge what the future is going to look like in this space and because that's what presumably that's what we're looking for we're looking for a handful of pioneers to drive towards a future that's safe transparent pliant and meets meets all of the kind of challenges that typically exist well certainly in the traditional financial world but a very different financial world right now yes i mean listen at the end of the day you know there's so much noise in the crypto space if you if you follow the space in just even twitter the twitterverse in this area there's so much information. There's so much news. But at the end of the day, if you strip all that away, what we're building is the financial system native to the internet. And yep. really, that's what we get up and do every day. And Web3 is really more about that. And if you think about Web2, if you think about how so much of the internet for the last 10 to 15 years has been concentrated in the power and the wealth of just a few companies, the real promise of Web3 is allowing individual content creators to own their own content and monetize it. And so when yep. you think about building a financial system that enables that, it really does open up opportunities for people that weren't traditionally didn't, you know, in the old days when you wanted to be in the financial services space, you had to have, you know, a Harvard MBA and a Bloomberg yeah. terminal. But now all you have to do is really open up a wallet. You can even mint your own NFTs. You know, it really does just open up so many opportunities for so many. And so at the end of the day, we're working with regulators hand in hand to figure out what does a sensible financial um, system for the Internet look like and what's the framework that allows it to flourish and grow, but also, you know, controls for things like money laundering and those 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 important things that we work really hard to to manage with governments as partners. Yep. So I think I stopped you. I think you were talking about then there was a, a third challenge that you were looking to address when you first started, or no doubt you're also addressing now. What 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 was the third? If I haven't put you off the, your train of thought, no worries at all. What yeah. I really enjoy about the space that that cryptocurrency as a as kind of an asset class is in right now is a lot of companies, including my own, are going through this this growth stage where they've already got great product market fit. There's no question that people yeah. want to engage. They want to understand. They want to learn. And so the space that I'm in right now in terms of the phase of the company is trying to, to build some of these processes and procedures yeah. that you know didn't exist before because the business has grown and changed so much. I mentioned we doubled our headcount in a single year. You can imagine that we've also more than tripled our business in, yeah. in just half as much time. And so a lot of the other the other priority I spend is just in this growth stage where things are kind of, it's a little bit chaotic trying to build some of the processes and procedures to yep. support a growing global, increasingly complex business yep. and making sure that we are building for the future. We're not just fixing fixing and patching holes, but really building a foundation for a durable, lasting company. So it's really just getting the company through this growth phase is my other. From that description, I won't say it's the typical, but certainly the challenges of scaling 
any global high velocity, high growth company, because it is usually in the early days, it's a bit of a shambles, it's chaotic, but that's what's required, you know, to get you through product market fit and get you through those early stages. And then, okay, if if we're going to scale, we need to have the systems, the processes, things that might have otherwise slowed you down in the early days. And things that actually don't matter, you just don't need, you need chaos in the early days, but as you start to scale, I can see more and more time, no doubt, is going to be, okay, how are we going to institutionalise everything that we do so that we can continue to build and allow for the growth trajectory that the blockchain.com is clearly on? Yes, absolutely. And that's my specialty. That's that's my sweet spot. I, I like coming into a company where some of the processes were built for a much smaller business or different products. Yep. And, and, you know, no one predicted how the crypto industry and Web3 ha- would and be where it is today. And so some of the products we're building and adding on every day where we need to build processes and procedures to support. So that's really my other focus is expanding the team, expanding some of the expertise on the team to be able to to meet the challenges of the industry. And can I ask you, what are there two or three things that you're incredibly excited about from a business perspective of, uh, in relation to what blockchain.com is doing. But what, what are some of the things that you've seen out there that kind of blow you away in terms of the art of the possible, the art of what, what you're already starting to see and, and projecting that out? Is there anything that's particularly exciting for you? Yes, for me, I'm really interested in the DeFi projects and opportunities out there. And it, we probably don't have time to go into like exactly what I mean by oh, DeFi. Let's do a little bit. Uh, let's, let's do a bit. I, I, we've got time because I think this is a fascinating space too, and I'd love the audience to, to learn a bit more about it. Sure. So I think, you know, crypto in the in the early days was, you know, maybe buy some Bitcoin, maybe exchange it, maybe just hold a lot of people would hold. And now there's all these new projects popping up that go well beyond that. Yes, there's lots of different tokens. or And when we say token, we mean a type of currency, kind yes. of similar to how a euro is. Or yep. Yep. you can buy now up to, I think it's, you know, hundreds of, of currencies across the space. And now it's devolved and, and evolved, I guess evolved really is a better yep. word, to so many different opportunities to engage in Web3, whether it's NFTs, whether it's you know gaming, gaming yeah. and crypto have come together to create some really interesting projects. And in order to participate in this world, you've got to have the right wallet. And so one thing that I'm really excited about is just the potential for DeFi. It's in such early days, you know, blockchain.com has one of the largest concentration of wallets that are the type of wallet that allow you to participate in DeFi, which is basically a non-custodial wallet. So a really important distinction between some companies and blockchain is if you want to give your password, we call them keys in crypto parlance. If you want to entrust your password with the company like Coinbase, they'll hold your password for you. It's kind of almost similar to like how a bank account would be in the old days. But many crypto enthusiasts and um, business people don't want a third party to hold their password. And so that's called a non-custodial wallet. And so... Blockchain.com offers both custodial and non-custodial wallets, but because Blockchain.com has historically been more focused on the non-custodial wallets, we are really uniquely positioned to provide access to the DeFi world and DeFi projects. Like Uniswap is a great example of a lot of different DeFi, a gateway to the DeFi world. And without a non-custodial wallet, you can't really participate. So I'm really excited to see what happens in that world. I'm also really excited about NFTs. I think we're in the kind of, if you look at Gartner's hype cycle, 
there's sort of like peak of hype and then there's like the trough of despair. Yep. I do wonder like where are we going to be? Yeah. Uh, where do we go to the trough of despair on NFTs? I still think we're at the height, the hype cycle. We'll yeah. get through the trough of despair. Yep. And I think back on the way up is a ton of interesting use cases for NFTs. Yep. I was looking at an NFT project recently that allowed you to basically own your medical records and prove that with the blockchain that your medical records are actually yours and that they are accurate and you can take them from doctor to doctor. Those are the sorts of NFT use cases I'm really excited about. I was just going to ask about that. A couple of use cases for the audience, and that and that's a fantastic one. I've heard that one before. Are there any others that you think can be game-changing just for lives, for countries, anything that you've seen out there, whether it's NFTs or broad, more broadly with what blockchain.com is doing, is there anything out there in terms of the particularly the impact it can have on people that you that that you're particularly excited about? I mean, I just I think the possibility of crypto, especially for people outside of the US and maybe, you know, the traditional banking system yeah. is is for me one of the parts of building the financial system for the internet that's so exciting and important. You know, we look today at what's happening in Ukraine yeah. and we see a lot of activity in Ukraine as people are, you know, the currency is moving around, they're moving out of the country, they can't get money out of bank accounts. And we have a lot of messages from our Ukrainian users saying how grateful they are to be able to take their wallet and be have portable wealth in a time of great turbulence. We see it in countries like El Salvador, where people really rely on crypto. We also have a big Nigerian user base. And in Nigeria, crypto assets have been a huge part of, of life there for actually a long time. Yeah. And cutting out all those huge fees that you know traditional wire companies would charge, um, remittance fees are massive in third, in third world countries. So just being a part of being able to improve people's lives, especially in times of, of geopolitical yeah. um, issues when people are moving around. I'm really excited about to continuing to develop our, our product in those worlds and making life easier to bank. I mean, even if you look at here in the US, 20% of Americans can't really qualify for a bank account. And that's here in the developed um, in a developed country. So, so there's a lot of work to do in the financial services industry, certainly. Yeah. And Lizzie, I'm not sure if I led you down that path, but that was precisely the path I was hoping you were going to go down because that is, to me, what I see some of the most exciting opportunities. Essentially, it's the financial freedom that so much of the world doesn't have because of the inability to access the existing or the old financial system. And certainly when I think about the potential impact on lives, that's what I think about. I think about exactly the kind of examples that we're seeing now in Ukraine. I'm thinking about the low threshold of percentage of population in, let's say, South America that have actually have access to a bank account and how impossible it is to get access to a bank account and how they can spend days and months and still not get anywhere. So certainly from... You know, my limited understanding, that that's, to me, financial liberation for a large part of the world's population. It's hard to think about more, impact, more impactful uh, or being more impactful than that because, you know, economic security and, and freedom is ultimately what we, what we all strive for. So, yeah, and you, we, just, uh, yeah. we acquired a business recently in Argentina. We're really excited about um, a crypto company there. And I'm spending a lot of time in Latin America and with our team. And it's really clear that, you know, sometimes in the U.S., the, the media focuses on crypto as like a wealth creation event. But honestly, in countries like Argentina, where 
the you know the peso has fluctuated so dramatically yeah. and honestly been devalued and then it's gone back up and it's and so for people there it's a matter of life and death to yeah. be able to have their money outside of the you know control of the government and so we're really lucky to have this technology that allows people to basically exchange money with people in the U.S. They have a lot of them have family members in the U.S. And before they were paying Western Union fees that were sometimes 25 percent of what they were what they were sending back home. And it's really the promise of having that financial freedom, as you say. Yeah, fantastic. So, Lindsay, tell me a little bit about your involvement, involvement with BFF. Tell me what that's about and for, for the audience. Yeah, I'm really excited about this project. So, you know. Several of us uh, in the industry were looking around at, at conference after conference, and it's almost all men. And as you can imagine, if you think about the asset of just Bitcoin alone going up over 370% in like seven months time, a lot of wealth has been created in this industry already. And women just, we're just not seeing them at the table, whether it. it's on the company side, whether it's on the investor side. And so a group of 50 women, we came together, women across all different sectors, the arts, tech, media, crypto specifically, in my case, I'm the only lawyer in the group. And we all said, we've got to address this issue. We, each of us had friends that were asking us, what, how do I get started? I don't even know, it, the, the yeah. barriers to entry for crypto and Web3 seem very high. I don't even know how to educate myself. And so we came together and we, we formed a community called My BFF. And the goal right now, I think there's a lot of opportunities for us as a group, and we're thinking about all sorts of plans, but phase one is really about education. How do we create content that people can understand? I'm trying to explain some of this, you know, to my own mother, like, is it, how difficult yep. is it for me to explain, you know, this industry to my mother? Like, let's create content that's just normal people can watch and understand and say, oh, I get the utility of this. Yeah. And so we're really focused right now on education. We actually minted our first NFTs and we gifted them to many in our audience. And those NFTs now are already quite valuable. And we've gotten some really great feedback from some women who hold them. And who, one woman sold it to pay her rent. And, and we were thrilled that we could contribute in that way. And so it's really about education. It's about bringing more women in. I mean, you know, men are 2x more likely to actually buy a crypto asset than women. And, and the study recently by MSNBC said only 9% of cryptocurrency holders are women. That is an appallingly low number. It is. NFTs are even lower. And so we're just really focused on trying to bring more women into the industry and non-binaries and give them the opportunity to be at the table in this what we think is an unprecedented wealth creation event. And for people who want to learn a bit more about uh, my BFF, where can they go? Twitter's a great place. If you look up at my BFF, we have a really active Twitter feed. We also have a lot of Web3 lives inside Discord. And so we have a Discord channel, which is really active. I'm on it all the time. People are asking me legal questions and tax yeah. questions. <laughs> Careful about the legal advice over Twitter. <laughs> I, I usually say I can't give legal advice and Correct. nor can I give tax. Yeah. Honestly, most people want tax advice. Like they yep. don't, they're That's most right. interested in like, what do I do? I sold an NFT. Like how do yep. I report this on my taxes? My accountant's brain is melting down. He doesn't know what to do. But we have a great Discord channel where you can access a lot of our content. Um, we're creating, we have a ton of content coming in the next few weeks too. So it's a great place. It's the place I kind of refer people when they say, hey, I want to learn about Web3. I keep hearing about it. Where do I go? Start at my BFF because we have some great slide decks where you can just, it boils things down to the, in simpler, non-crypto specific terminology. Crypto has a way of making 
verbiage that's like only unique to this yeah. one use case and, it, and you, it can make you feel like an outsider really fast yeah. and so my bff is aims to bring down some of those barriers yeah and, and it's funny as someone is probably on the more i regard myself as re- reasonably well read and reasonably educated and so forth i i've lost count of the number of podcasts and books and stuff that i've actually listened to or read just trying to understand and i think if i'm struggling with whether it's blockchain, whether it's NFTs, whether it's just cryptocurrencies and the whole, if I'm struggling to understand what hope <laughs> we we have yeah. to do, I think collectively the industry, whatever, has got to do a better job. I agree. So I think that, I think it's a fantastic initiative because of all the advantage we've talked about and you just cannot have 9% of women participating um, in that ecosystem. That can't be right. And it, and it is intimidating. I think it's not just yeah. the verbiage, but it's also, it's one of the reasons I love the space, but this convergence of, you know, tech, geopolitics, economics, you know, just fintech, like all these big things it's that fascinating. a lot yeah. of people, like when you put them all kind of mash them up, it is intimidating and it's hard to know where to start, but that's what we're working on at my BFF. Fantastic. Fantastic. I'm going to round out with some of my usual favorite questions, Lindsay. My first one, what's the hardest thing that you've ever done, personal or professional, that you're prepared to share with us? I think... Starting a company with a newborn, yeah. leaving. So at this point, I was at Uber, and a group of us at Uber had spotted a need in the market in the autonomous vehicle space, and we decided that we wanted to go build it. And I had never started a company before. You know, just three years earlier, I was a law firm lawyer. Um, I learned a lot at Uber, certainly, but I'm not an engineer. And so, you know, deciding again, like I said, on this journey of increasing risk. Decided to leave what was a great stable job to go and raise. We raised $4 million from a number of investors, including Cowboy Ventures, Aileen Lee, and tried to build this company. And I'd say probably the second hardest thing I did was realizing only about nine to 10 months into it that we, we our thesis was flawed and that we were just too early to the market. And so what we did was is we gave back 100% of the money that we had raised and we told our investors, you know what? Thank you for believing in us. We could we could make this money last for four years while we wait out the industry and hope the industry accelerates in a Wow. We thought it would and hadn't yet materialized, but we're going to give you the money back. We want to be good stewards of capital and let you deploy that money elsewhere and um, let our team, we had a team of 12 employees, go on to do something else. And some of them have gone on to some really great other companies. Um, one of them... Went, actually went to Coinbase and is now very senior at Coinbase. And so, you know, take, having the decision to both leave a job with a, with a tiny baby, this is my now my second child that I yep. had at Uber, raise money and go build a business and then realize that, you know, we just got it wrong. It was hard at the time, but I it was such a great experience, that zero to one experience where you're yep. trying to breathe this product into existence and put it out there in the world. It's very different than the growth stage that I'm at now at blockchain.com where I was at at Uber and realizing there's a lot, a ton of learning and lessons there, but by far that was probably the hardest thing I've done. That's funny you say that, Lindsay, because uh, the audience will have heard me say time and time again, finding product market fit, that is the loneliest, hardest time in the wilderness that I'm so glad we've got through in our business, but I never want to go back there again. Yes, you've been through it. You know how hard it is. You have to, you have to be such a believer. Yes. Yep. 
Yep, you have to absolutely believe in convictions. You And it is lonely. You search that soul of yours, asking all the questions, the whys and how, how long can we go on. And, and, yeah, so like I said, never want to go back there. So I absolutely hear you when you say that is the hardest thing. But probably, like all things, probably one of the most rewarding too. So with the benefit of time, and I always say let time judge whether it was a, a good decision or a bad decision. And it, presumably, it sounds like from you, with the benefit of time, the learning you had, the experience that you you probably wouldn't give that up. Not at all. And honestly, yeah. I, I'm so glad that we ha- were honest. My co-founder and I had a, have a great relationship and we looked around and we said, you know, it seems like we're going into an autonomous vehicle winter of sorts. And yep. we were right. But it was kind of even before other companies had started kind of either downscaling or changing the scope of their missions at that time. We were really on the forefront of that. I'm so grateful because it is still the the industry. We used to say in the industry in autonomous vehicles, people would be the year 2021 was the year everyone was going to be riding around in autonomous vehicles. And so this was 2018. I'm very glad we decided like it was actually a longer timeline. Yeah, yeah. And like with all great ideas, it's usually all great ideas come to pass at a point. It's usually the timing that is the problem um, with finding product market fit. You're just too early. That hurts, but that's often probably the most important factor in determining success is the market ready for your vision. Yes. And Jim, my favorite book, I think for those lawyers who are like me, maybe they're still at a law firm and they're fantasizing about what their next step is. Yeah. My favorite book to read that will help you think about not just product market fit, but what life in a company is like is the hard thing about hard things. Oh, it's my favorite. You've called it out. My favorite, The Struggle, the page. Every time I go back to The Struggle, that single page, and I remember when it was harder and we were in that phase, I'd read that page, I'd... I was bawling my eyes out at that page because that single page, and for any of you out there, please read the struggle page on Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing About Hard Things because I've never seen a page in a bit so perfectly capture exactly what it's like when you're in those early days of finding, trying to find product market fit and how hard it is. Uh, to build a company. It's so true. I'm so I'm so glad you called that out. I How about that? that? And, and we didn't even plan I, that one, did we? <laughs> I know we didn't. No. I have to tell you, Jim, so every new lawyer that joins my team, when they accept their offer, they get a book. They, they get the hard thing about hard things in the mail from me. And I ask them to read it. And I think it's I go back to it so periodically, you know, just to individual yep. chapters. But yeah. It's a great text. It is fantastic. Lindsay, what an absolute pleasure it's been speaking to you. I've had an absolute blast. Thanks so much for spending the time. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Jim. This is fun. All right. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.